Our text this morning is but one verse. Ephesians 4, verse 28. But in order to give us a bit of context, what I would like to do is read from verse 17 through verse 28. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let us go before our Lord's throne of grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word this morning. We pray, O Lord, that you would shine the light of the gospel before us, that we might know more and more what you have done for us, that we might know more and more the power you have given to us to obey. We ask all this through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. There has been in these past few years a resurgence in the interest of a certain singer named Johnny Cash, the man in black. Part of that might be that an award-winning movie came out recently in the last few years. There's also been a re-release of several of his albums after he passed away. One of his most famous songs is a song called, I Walk the Line. And in that song, he sings, Because you're mine, I walk the line. This is a classic American rendition of something that we all appreciate. Kids say it this way. If you're going to talk the talk, you'd better walk the walk. You see, we know that someone whose words are not backed up by actions isn't really worth much. That and $2 might get you a coffee at Starbucks. You see, none of us would think that a man who said he had a great memory, and yet at the same time couldn't remember his children's names or birthdays, was really telling the truth. We know that someone's actions tell us about the truth 
of their words. And this isn't just the case with modern braggarts. It's the case with the Christian as well. Saying that God has changed you means something. It means, now imagine this now, that you have actually changed and that you show that change. People will see it. It means an entire shift in your focus, a shift away from self and toward the Lord. The Apostle Paul is talking about one example of this in our text this morning. He's showing us what a changed life will look like for the believer. He tells us how we are to walk in line with our talk. And that walk here involves three things. First, the old thief put off. Second, the new worker put on. And then third, the new heart on display. The old thief put off. The new worker put on, and the new heart on display. Let's look first at the old thief that is put off. Paul begins this admonition by reminding the Ephesians and you and me to put off the old self, the old man. Now, he doesn't use that exact phrase here in our particular verse, but this is a very familiar Pauline theme. And it shouldn't surprise us that he chooses this opportunity to do this for two reasons. First, he is consistently making reference to ways of putting off sin and putting on righteousness all throughout his letters. And second, our instruction today comes in the middle of a series of instructions. We might better call them commands about how the Christian is to act. They're commands from Paul to the Ephesian church, commands that we are to follow Paul's explicit description of what it means like to be a new creature in Christ. Look here at verse 17. Paul tells his readers and us that we are to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, in verse 24, we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And so it would be perfectly appropriate to say that our text here this morning is one application, one example of the process of sanctification, of being like Jesus. It is perhaps what we might call an important application. An important application. You see, it's important because this comes in a context for understanding Paul's admonition here in verse 28. When Paul says, let the thief steal no longer, it's not a random thought. It's not a moralism to, to give better behavior to those who are listening. No, it's an application of what it means to be in Christ of having learned Christ, as Paul says. And what is the command that Paul says here? Well, it's a simple command, a general command. Do not steal. The exact words, as we looked at, are, let the thief no longer steal. But this should remind us of another general example of this in Exodus 20, where the commandment just states very plainly, do not steal. 
It's a command that is sweeping in its scope. There's no attempt to limit it at all. All stealing is forbidden. There is no way in which stealing is allowed. And this is, if we think about it, very different from the way our modern laws work, isn't it? If we were to look at any aspect of our modern legal system and to have to have a comprehensive description of an area of the law, we'd have to carry around a little red wagon with books in it. As a matter of fact, some states have so many different and complex laws to cover all aspects of stealing that if I were simply to read them to you, it would take up the rest of our time this morning. But the Bible doesn't handle these issues this way. The Bible's view is simple. The Bible's view is straightforward. The Bible's view is unambiguous. There is no wiggle room at all here. Stealing is wrong. Stealing is forbidden. And Paul is emphatic here because he's being consistent. Exodus 20 says the same thing. Our Lord Jesus Christ says the exact same thing to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Do not steal. So why then does Paul, what then does Paul mean when he says, let him who stole steal no longer. The first question that might come to your mind after this is, well, so what? Or who? Me? How does this apply to me? A, a long lecture on stealing. The first thing that comes to your mind when you hear this is likely what would have come to the mind of the believers in Ephesus in Paul's day. There's a plain meaning here. It means you can't take things from other people. You can't just go up and grab a person's ox or a person's sheep to use examples from the book of Exodus, chapter 22. But in our day, you can't just walk up and take someone's car or their computer or their money. You have no right to do this. But Paul makes it clear that not only do you have no right to do this, it's behavior that is incompatible with being in Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean, though, that as Christians we are perfect and immune from this command. Because Paul actually says something very interesting here. He says, let the thief no longer steal. And actually the word for thief here is one who steals, present tense. You see, the commandment here from Paul is in the present tense, not in the past tense. And it's so broad that he is actually applying it to the church itself. What? You might think. Surely Paul doesn't mean that. Why would he think there are thieves out in the church? He must be saying something different. He, he's got to be thinking about somebody else, right? Surely Paul can't mean me. I don't break into someone's house and rob them. I don't have elaborate schemes to defraud people out of money. I don't rob people at gunpoint. This can't apply to me, can it? Now, if you're thinking like this, you're likely thinking exactly as the believers in Ephesus were thinking at the time that this letter was given to them. And I have to tell you, you're missing the point. Just as they likely missed the point. Well, what is this point? How am I missing the point, you might ask? You see, we miss the point of Paul's command here when we try and make it apply to everybody else but me.
that's when we miss the point of God's Word. You see, it is our great weakness in applying the Word that we want to only apply it to others and not to ourselves. Because it is so much easier to see the speck in our neighbor's eye than the plank in our eye. And if we're honest in our day, it, we don't even have to look for specks. There are people out there walking around with two-by-fours coming out of their eyes. It's easy to see people who are so dishonest, who are thieves of the first order. that we, The result is we don't even stop to check our own eyes. But you see, this is exactly what the people of Paul's day were tempted to do. They had tax collectors who were notorious. Their job, they were paid by the government to steal. That was their job. They lived in a land of highway robbers. You wouldn't dare go from here to Austin or here to College Station because you, especially not at night, you'd be afraid of being laid upon by robbers, beaten with clubs, stabbed, robbed. There were corrupt priests and corrupt officials. And it was easy to see that they stole things. They oppressed others. It was easy to see that they were sinners. And you see... We think often at times that God's law is a weapon that we have in our arsenal against others. It's a weapon that we can use against the bad guys. And we have no problem with doing that. You see, we're the ones that God uses to point out to people how bad they are. We think that that's our job, and that's the application of the word for the Christian. But you see... When we do that, we're not applying the word to ourselves. We're not applying the command to our own lives right here, right now. You see, this is what Paul is saying to us. He's saying to those who might be tempted to get ahead through dishonest means, you can't think about stealing. You can't think about shortcuts. There's no option. If you were in Ephesus and you were a former slave or even a current slave, you might be tempted to steal from your master. Paul says that's not even an option to think about. You may not be a slave, but you may have a company that treats you badly. You may have a boss that, that abuses you, that takes your time for advantage, that doesn't think of your family. And you might be tempted to rectify it by stealing today. So the question comes, are you tempted to steal today? Now, think about that for a moment. I don't mean robbing someone. I mean taking one of the 35 boxes of pens sitting in the supply room. I mean not being quite so sharp on your tax return. I mean children cheating on your homework, cheating on the test, stealing someone else's answers. You see, there are lots of different ways to steal. We might even think of stealing as taking dishonest advantage of someone in a business deal. It's the, the kind of thing we do when we see someone has a rookie baseball card that we know is worth about $50. And we say, well, you know, it's not that important. I'll, I'll give you $2 for that. That's stealing. Dishonest gain. All these sorts of things are what Paul means when he tells you, when he tells me, to steal no more, to put off the old thief. And so Paul tells us to put off.
off the old thief and to steal no more. From now on, Paul says, I want your lives to be I don't want your lives to be marked anymore by stealing. I don't want you to be viewing the world from the perspective about what you need and what you want, regardless of how that affects others. But you see, Paul doesn't stop there. And that shouldn't surprise us as well either. You see, the Bible doesn't stop simply by telling us what we are not to do. Our larger catechism, question 99, is very helpful in understanding the way we are to interpret the Ten Commandments. It says, in layman's terms, that where something is forbidden, the opposite duty is commanded. So do not lie means honor the truth. And do not steal means you must work and be productive. It is not enough not to steal. It also means we are forced to work and be productive by the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's exactly what Paul says. Because the next phrase here in verse 28 is, Rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And Paul is being very intentional with his instruction here. He's clearly setting up, the opposite of stealing as a way of life for us to practice. Don't steal, he says, but instead of stealing, you are to work. And this fits quite well with the structure that Paul set up about putting off and putting on. You don't just put off the old thief, you have to put on the new worker. It's not enough to just not steal, the believer must be productive and work. And it's interesting here that Paul does not mince any words. We might expect Paul to beat around the bush a little bit. To try a roundabout way to convince the Ephesians to be productive. After all, that's what we're used to in our day, isn't it? It's an awkward thing to tell people how to live their lives, isn't it? It's downright un-American. It's one thing to tell someone not to act sinfully by stealing, but what pastor has the right to tell me how I should spend my time, how hard I should work, what I should do? After all, don't I have liberty in Christ? I mean, if that means I want to sit on my couch all day long and watch soap operas and do nothing, why should I be told to do any different? So long as I don't steal. But you see, Pastor Paul says, no, you don't have that right. You don't have the right to be lazy and unproductive. You don't have the right to take and bury your talent in the backyard, just like the worker in the parable. You must labor, Paul says. And Paul is quite emphatic here. By the word labor that Paul uses here, he means that as Christians we are to exert ourselves. We are to make an enthusiastic effort to work. You might think of it this way. Do you remember the story? It's in Luke chapter 5, where Peter and the disciples, they go out to catch some fish, and they work all night long. They don't catch any fish, but they work so hard that when they come back, they are bone tired. They are depressed, they are weary, they are dragging. They're so dragging that when Jesus comes up and he says, just cast the net one more time. You can almost hear the huge, oh, not another one. Okay, they're tired. 
They've worked hard. Peter says they've labored all night long. It's hard work. It's the same word that Paul uses here. It's tough, tiring work. And you see, Paul is no hypocrite here. He describes his own work in the same way in Acts chapter 20. In his final conversation with the Ephesian elders, he says that he worked with his own hands. He worked as a tent maker in the same way that he tells you and me to work, to be productive. Now, this kind of work, this kind of productivity is important. Why is it important? It's important because it has gospel implications. It has gospel implications. You see, Paul actually uses this kind of work, this description, to describe how he worked in spreading the gospel. When he writes to the Colossians, for example, Paul tells them that he preaches and teaches to present every man perfect in Christ, and that is his labor. Same word. That is his work. When he writes to Timothy, he reminds him that those who labor, same word, in the word and doctrine are to be honored. You see, it is a good thing to work hard for the glory of God. Paul tells us that very directly. In our work, we're not only to work with our hands, but we are to work what is good. We are to have honest work. We're not called merely to work for work's sake. We're called to be productive, to be a blessing to others. You see, that is the contrast to stealing. We are to be so far away from stealing, so far away from being a sinful burden on others, that we are to be productive members of our church, productive members of our society, to be far removed from that. Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you thought about, have you seen your work or the lack of it? as something that had gospel implications? You know, we often think about Satan as being a murderer, as he's described in the Bible. But have you thought about the fact that in John 10.10, he is described as the thief that comes in to steal? Have you thought about that Judas' true heart is revealed when he is described in John 12 as a thief? And so the question then comes to you, are you ready right now, today, to follow the command of God here? Are you ready not only to avoid stealing, but to work and to work hard? Teenagers, Paul is talking to you here. It is not just mom and dad that are on your case about working hard. It is the command of God that you are to labor and to labor hard. This also has implications for our modern idea of retirement. And I say modern because at no other period of time, no other society has ever had a notion of retirement like we have. And I mean the notion that at age 65, we leave our jobs, we move off to Florida, and we wait to die spending the rest of our lives playing shuffleboard and eating at buffets. Now, if that's what you're looking forward to, you have to listen to Paul here. 
You have to repent of that kind of idea of retirement. The Christian never retires like that. Now, the Christian may leave his job, but he remains active. He's active in studying the Bible. He's active in ministry. He's active in, in imparting his experience to others who can benefit from it. You see, retirement is simply having more time to do ministry for the Lord. Is that your desire? To have more time to build up the kingdom by the power of God? Is that what you want more freedom to do? I pray that that's the case. I pray that that's the case for me, that together we would labor hard to build up the kingdom for the glory of God. Well, we've seen that Paul tells us to put off the old thief. And we've seen that he commands us to put on the new worker, to labor and to do what is good. Now let's look at one final thing. Let's look at the result of this instruction to see the Christian's new heart on display through his actions. Do you see what Paul says here at the end of verse 28? He says, So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul's saying something important here. He's giving a practical, but yet very spiritual purpose behind stealing, behind not stealing, and working to do good. He's telling us that the end of these commands is to be marked by generosity. This shouldn't surprise us. It is out of our hearts, the Lord says, that our words and actions proceed. You see, the Christian life is not just a series of do's and don'ts. It is not enough to just simply follow all the rules. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we have no hope of following all the rules. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit, a work within us, a work that starts with a new heart and a new mind, that we can have any hope of obeying God's commands. You see, the Christian obeys the commands of God because God places it on his heart to obey the commands of God. You can't have obedience without a new heart. You might as well try and think about a fish that can breathe air on the land. It is not in the nature of a Christian. And so Paul tells us here that our actions with respect to things are a reflection of what is in our hearts. And this is another reason to obey the commands of God. By obeying the law of God, by the help of the Holy Spirit and God's grace, this is one of the best evidences, both to others and to ourselves, that we indeed have been changed by the work of God. You see, we can easily see that disobedience shows a bad state of heart. But we need to think about our obedience as showing the work of God in our lives and in our hearts. Do you ever wonder why God took up one of the Ten Commandments about stuff? I mean, think about it. God has Ten Commandments and He uses one to deal with our stuff and whether we take it or not. Couldn't He have come up with another good commandment about honoring God? 
Maybe something else about worship. Stuff isn't exactly very spiritual, is it? Wouldn't it just have been enough to have a laundry list of laws in Deuteronomy? Kind of like we do in our statutes. Why does he put it here in one of the Ten Commandments? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because God knows it is a very short leap from putting ourselves above others to putting ourselves above God. You see, the way we handle stuff shows our view of spirituality, of our relationship with God. If I steal because I decide that I deserve something, and it doesn't matter if someone else has it, that same kind of mentality leads to place ourselves above God. Isn't that exactly how the Israelites thought? Well, why should I bother to bring the best lamb out of my flock to God? After all, he doesn't really need it. At least he doesn't need it like I need it. He's omnipotent. Why can't I just give him one of the lame ones or the sick ones? Keep the best one for myself. You see, the answer, of course, is that God calls this stealing from him. It's stealing that begins in the heart and shows itself out in actions. And this is especially important for us to guard our hearts against. You see, many of us treat God like we would treat the Salvation Army. You know what I mean and how we prepare to make donations to the Salvation Army, right? You go into your closet and you find all the stuff that doesn't fit you anymore has a couple of small holes that won't really bother somebody else that they're getting it for free. Stuff that's gone out of style, the big wide ties or the shirts with the big lapels, and you bag them up and you send them off and you think, well, you know, somebody would be happy to have a shirt. I'm not wearing it, right? The problem is we can have that kind of a mentality toward God. We give him our leftovers. He's our afterthought. Now, how different would it be instead? if donating to the Salvation Army consisted of a shopping trip to go out and buy the newest and best things to give to others. Things that we wouldn't even dare spend money on for ourselves. But we want to be generous to others. We want to sacrifice our best for others. But you see, far too often our hearts deceive us, don't they? We make up our budgets. We figure out what our mortgage is, what our car payment is. We factor in vacation and food and everything else. And then at the bottom, we figure out what's left, and that's what we give to God. He gets what's left over. Instead of a biblical view, which is we start with giving to the Lord, giving Him our first fruits, giving Him our best. You see, the amount is not what's important. The widow and her two coins prove that in the Bible. It's the heart. A heart that needs to be marked by generosity. Generosity that flows out of thankfulness for what God has done to us. Are you tempted today to steal from God? To make Him wait upon you for what you think is rightfully yours and not His? Paul tells you today to show forth a renewed heart. By obeying this command of God. But there's more here. Notice also how Paul strikes right at the jugular vein of the mindset of stealing. He says we are to have 
a new mindset. An entirely new mindset. He says we are to be marked by generosity, not selfishness. We are to have something to share with anyone in need. Now, we might have expected Paul to say that we are not to steal and we're to work hard so that we're not a burden on other people. That makes good practical sense. We don't want to be a burden to others. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say work hard so you can be self-sufficient. He says you are to work hard so that you might have something to give to others who need help. You're to work hard to enable you to be generous. To provide for those who have less than you do. Those who need our help. There's an excellent picture of that in the Gospels, isn't there? Where our Lord Jesus Christ says, if you have two cloaks, give one to him who has need of one. It's the same way. It's the same word to give. You see, the Christian is to be marked by having a heart that is so far away from stealing that he loves to give away what he has worked very hard for. He loves to give it away for the benefit of others. Is that your heart today? If not, I pray that the Lord would lay that upon your heart and mine. I pray that God would grant it to you to be overwhelmed by generosity. Why? Because that's not just the commandment here in Ephesians 4. That, friends is the gospel. The gospel is all about working for the sake of others, giving to others what they have not earned, providing for the needs of others. Because isn't that exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did? He didn't think of himself. He didn't hoard away the fruit of his hard labor, but he gave it freely to his people that we might benefit, that we might be blessed. Well, as we conclude here, think about the fact that Paul puts his money where his mouth is, so to speak. This very letter to the Ephesians was written by Paul from prison. He was imprisoned while he was on a missionary journey, and that journey started primarily as a work of providing assistance to the poor in Jerusalem. You see, Paul was a man whose life was marked by generosity. He was a man who walked the walk just as well as he talked the talk. In Galatians chapter 2, he tells us he was very eager to remember the poor. And he showed that by his actions. You see, Paul was countercultural to the core. He was counter to a culture of selfishness, a culture of greed. A culture of win at any cost that marked Roman and Greek society in his day. We might ask ourselves, is it really any different now? You know, many in our culture believe in the gospel of Gordon Gecko, if you remember that old movie. That greed is good. Instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ, give to anyone in need. What better way to be a shining light for the gospel in our society than by obeying this command? 
How better to show the grace and mercy of God than by acting in grace and in mercy? Is that your heart? Do you long to see people come to know Jesus Christ? Do you long to see our culture transformed by the power of the gospel? If so, start here. Start now. This very day. Start here by saying and living a life that is marked by a new heart. A life that is transformed by the power of the gospel. And a heart that desires not only not to steal, not only to put off the old thief, but to work hard for God's glory, to put on the new worker. A heart that loves to show gratitude. A heart that loves to show generosity. And the greatness of God's grace. By putting on display the gift of God, a new heart that is marked by generosity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed shown us that we are to be generous with all that you have given to us, even as you have been generous to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would remind us of this in the midst of our days, that we would not steal, that we would not be lazy, but that we would labor hard to give to those who are in need that you might get the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.